Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. And today, our topic is sexuality in the church. And our intent today is to introduce a whole array of issues that the church wrestles with when it comes to sexuality. Our culture is sexually charged, I think it would be fair to say, and uh, because of that, the church is facing an array of challenges in terms of encouraging uh, virtue and morality on the one hand, and then what it's facing in uh, populations that uh, they minister to on the other. My guests are, um, what can I say, they're veterans of foreign wars here. They've been here many times. Uh, Gary Barnes on my right and Debbie Wade on my left, and uh, they each are professional counselors who work in this area and bring, we think, expertise to the topic. That's our hope anyway. And I'm just the little old theologian sitting here in the middle uh, 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 adjudicating the conversation. So the conference, uh, which will be held on September 15th uh, at the seminary, is entitled Jerusalem Meets Vegas, and Sexual, uh, Sexual Choices and Christian Community. And we're going to walk through a variety of issues. And I thought to introduce this, I just walked through uh, a couple of uh, citations from Stan Jones and Mark Yarhouse's book uh, on homosexuality and the use of scientific research in the church's moral debate, a book that goes back to 2000, and that even though it's written in 2000 in one level is already somewhat uh, dated, I could say, in the in the way in which in the way in which it's interacting with where society was at the time when they wrote versus where it is today. But there's still some value, I think, in what they're saying. Here's, here's one piece of what they, uh, they say. There was a time when the seemingly undeniable realities of life and culture provided support and even confirmation for what Christians understood to be true about sexual ethics. Those days have passed. And uh, they illustrate this with a list of things that have happened really in the last several decades that have changed the conversation. I'm just going to go through the list. Uh, effective contraceptive methods breaking the bond between sexual acts, conception, family life, and parenting. Breakdown in marriages and the expectation that marriage is permanent and the moral view that sex should be reserved for marriage. More study and demystifying of and normalization of previously hidden behavior that had been seen as deviant. Urbanization and the rise of sexual minorities that have emphasized individual liberty and entitlement as a means of popular affirmation and legitimization. The triumph of what is called essentialism, that's the view that designations like homosexual capture the real essence of a person's self, the essential person, if you will. The ready access through media of sexually titillating material available at a click. A sexually affirming culture that has made humorous all sorts of jokes about sexuality and treated all kinds of calls for restraint as puritanical. A change in tolerance levels in what used to be considered universally immoral to the point that such claims about moral standards are called patriarchal, imperialistic, or hateful. Erosion of confidence in and escalating hostility to any sense that the Bible and Christian tradition should address the parameters for law, ethics, or virtue. The triumph of personal experience and desire over reflection on corporate societal impact. 
the rise of casual multiple relationships in the hookup generation, the rise in the number of broken families and children raised in broken homes. Mm. The way I summarize this is life in the 21st century is very different when it comes to marriage and family than it was in my parents' generation, and it is likely to be far different for my grandchildren's generation than it is for my own. So. What do you think? You all are counselors who work in this area. Is that a reflection of where we are and where we've come to and where we're going? You know, Daryl, I would say uh, during these last several uh, decades, there have been changes that have just been so far sweeping. And um, we, we don't really come to think about how all of these different ways come to bear on a whole new cultivated way of thinking mm-hmm. about our sexuality, about families, uh, about the individual sexual health, you know. And uh, one of the things that you started off to say was, I'm just a little theologian here in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to let me get away with that. <laughs> I know him well enough to know because, that. Because <laughs> uh, we know uh, that as well as being trained psychologically and sexually, the very best thing you can do for sexual health and family well-being is, is to be well-grounded in theology. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, that little theologian's voice is a mm. very important voice to uh, to be loud in the sweeping changes that that we're going through. And one of the things, of course, that has happened is is that we have so secularized a lot of our conversation in this area that the voice reflection of of theology or even moral philosophy. Um, has basically been shunted off to the side as not necessarily being relevant. This is strictly a discussion about human rights and human choice, mm-hmm. or human freedom, and there are a variety of ways it gets, or human identity. I mean, you can have all those uh, elements in the equation, but let's not think about uh, categories that deal with virtue and morality in those kinds of areas, because those uh, the <laughs> those make the discussion a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, right. Squirmy. Yeah. Debbie, what do you think? Well, I just think that we, in some ways, we want to make things so difficult. Mm-hmm. And when we come back just simply to God's design of us spiritually, Adam and Eve in the garden. He, he was pretty strict with some boundaries and guidelines mm-hmm. and said, here's, here's what I have for you, mm-hmm. and then this is not for you. Mm-hmm. And I think the way that Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden is the same way he comes to us now. Has and God really said? Has God really said, yeah. you can't have this. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so in, in some essence, the, the, the strategy of the evil one is the same. Mm-hmm. But we've just got more and more ways, I think, to express it and to move those boundaries more and more. And so it seems that things are worse, Mm -hmm. but it's our human nature, I think, with the encouragement of the evil one that we're just going to stretch those boundaries wherever we can take them, however creative we can be. And the the hard thing about this is is that we do it and then – 
And then what I like to say is we may think we're walking away from the consequences, but we actually meet the consequences around the corner. Hmm. That, that That when we turn the corner and we see what comes out of the choices that we make, that oftentimes what happens is, is that they've actually met us right in the face and they've come back at us. And what you thought you were able to get away with, you in fact uh, end up paying for in, in, a, in some type of concrete human toll in one way or another. Hmm. Well, that's a good overview to, to launch us in let me let, let's start with um, let's start on a, on a if I can do it this way on a positive side if you will because sure. I think the danger in this conversation is it ends up being <laughs> negative only and you know this is what you shouldn't be doing um, when in fact sexuality is one of the more distinctive and powerful um, creations that God mm-hmm. has given us mm-hmm. um, so uh, you've mentioned Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, I, I think I want to hear uh, uh, a female's take on Genesis 1 and 2. So tell me how you think about Genesis 1 and 2 uh, a- as you look at it and what is it telling us about sexuality? I, I, I'm just going to come to the, the piece where God says after he had designed everything and mm-hmm. he came back and said, I created man and woman in my image, both male and female. Mm -hmm. We created them. And then he says it's good. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely good. Mm -hmm. So I I believe that Christ – or I'm sorry, that that God created us to be confident Mm -hmm. in our masculinity, confident in our femininity, knowing that we're created in his image. There's not anything to be ashamed of in our bodies. Mm -hmm. We're to delight in who we are. That doesn't mean that we're to be provocative and seductive mm-hmm. with them in an unmanageable way, mm-hmm. but we are to delight in our sexuality and to have confidence that it's a God-given sexuality. Okay, and Gary, how would you say about Genesis 1 and 2? And I'll let you speak for all Yeah, I, I, I really agree with you with this starting point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's start on the right yeah. step here yeah. rather than the wrong step. And uh, a way I commonly start the conversation is to say, let's elevate our conversation. Mm-hmm. Because when it, especially when it comes to conversations about sexuality, there, there tends to be this slippery slope where we're sliding off to one side of demonizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we can also actually slide down the other side of deifying, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See? and it becomes our God. Mm-hmm. And, and to really elevate it to what we would call sacred sexuality, mm-hmm. we're getting back to God's thinking mm-hmm. about sexuality. Mm-hmm. And, and really, God's given us this awesome gift because it's God-reflective. Yes. Now, this is actually where I very much want to go, is to talk about the way in which the and I'm going to say it this way, the unique intimacy that is sexuality is is a mirror of something quite profound. Yes. yes. It's not a uh, it, it's not a casual thing. It's not uh, the analogy I like to use, it's not like you know getting a can of soda. you know uh, it, it's not that common. Yeah. and it's not designed to be that common. I mean, you don't shop around for it, that kind of right, thing. Right. It's designed to be special. And when we say that sexuality is sacred, what we're part of what we're saying is it's set apart. It's yes. sanctified. Yes. It's special. Yes. And that's part of what makes it important. And it also mirrors, uh, a level of intimacy that exists in relationships because that exchange that takes place in sexuality is a really uniquely intimate 
thing that's going on. Yes. It's not a casual thing that's going on. No, People no. may pretend it's casual, but it's not. And all of this feeds into how we, we see the area. Right. I, I um, keep hanging on to one of my favorite quotes of Dan Allender where mm -hmm. he, he's talking about sexuality and uh, intimate allies, and he says, uh, sex is a window into the heart of God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a good that one to is. think about. Yeah, that is. That's, you can pause and think about yeah. that in a whole lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so it matters. The, the, the other part is it matters. Absolutely. It, it, it's, uh, it, it's, not, it's not like a lottery ticket, you know. You buy one and then buy another one next week and the uh -huh. next one the next week and hope that somewhere at some point yeah, you cash yeah. in. Um, the thing that's tricky for us is it, it does involve a tricky interplay because as humans created in God's image, uh, w whether we're single or married, mm -hmm. we're still sexual beings. That's right. You don't become a sexual being once you get married. Right. See? And so we all have this God-reflective thing going on with sexuality, mm -hmm. um, and we're participants in it. We're actually key participants in it. But even the experience of sexuality is not primarily about us. Mm -hmm. Right. It's elevated above us. Mm -hmm. It's to what it points us to. Mm -hmm. See now, I, let's develop this because I think that m I think that one of the things that you're dealing with in the culture is is that sexuality isn't it isn't not only not about us. Sexuality for a lot of people is just about me. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going. We're going. We got. We got right, two highways right, right. going in an opposite right, direction right. here. Um, and so, if that's the case, then how do we? How, let, let's talk about. Okay, it's not just about us; it's taking us to a higher place. Let's talk about both the usness of what we're talking mm -hmm. about, and also the other place that it's taking us yeah. to. Mm -hmm. Let's do both of those things because both of them are positive and both of them are important. Yeah. What do you What do you think, Debbie? To make sure I know exactly what direction you're going here. Well, you can but, take that however <laughs> you. Uh, that, that is that is me fly fishing. Okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just a love ball. You know, I, I want to come back that I, I think that when when God seeks us and pursues us mm -hmm. relationally, and He designed us in a way that we would be responsive and receptive to Him. Mm -hmm. You know, Scripture says that His word is to be penetrating, mm -hmm. uh, heart and soul. And so I think when we look at how He designed us as sexual beings and as man and, and woman coming together, that it, it's a beautiful metaphor of what he wants in a relationship with us intimately, mm -hmm. that as he pursues and seeks and we're to be responsive for man and woman to come together, one has to pursue and penetrate mm -hmm. and one has to be responsive and receptive. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have this beautiful metaphor that God says, I, I don't want to control you. I want you to be responsive to me. Hmm. I, I want to be. I want you to surrender, and I want to be giving. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we look at husband and wives coming together, there's not room for selfishness. Mm -hmm. I mean, there really has to be a surrendering and a receptiveness, a penetration and a responsiveness, a vulnerability coming together for mm -hmm. intimacy. And it's at a spiritual soul level, not just a body level. And unfortunately, I think so much of society just wants to make sex about body parts and mm -hmm. you know positions and techniques, mm -hmm. and completely miss out on the soul 
interaction piece that involves God. And in the process, you lose a sense of the giftedness of what is going on here and the specialness of what's going on in the process. It all, the whole thing is is leveled out to a, to, a, to a place that really makes it less than what it, it could or should be in many ways. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, yeah. So I, I think whenever it takes a self-focus, mm -hmm. you've you've already gone off the slippery slope. Mm -hmm. you, you've removed yourself from being able to elevate it mm -hmm. in its design. See? Yeah. And so um, getting back to that theologian's voice, uh, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite books on sexuality is not by a psychologist, it's by a theologian, Stanley Grins, mm -hmm. Sexual Ethics. Mm -hmm. and. He, uh, he really helps me get this God picture mm -hmm. of how this is God reflective and, it, and it's God's really special, unique way of getting a special, not just knowledge about God, mm -hmm. but even experience of mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. And that this is also true uh, whether you're single or uh, married. Mm -hmm. so I think a lot of times we only think as Christians about the experience of sexuality is unless you're married, you're not sexual, and certainly don't do it. Mm -hmm. See? Mm -hmm. uh, but he he um, really brings out this role of the otherness mm -hmm. and how this is so central to the Trinity itself mm -hmm. and uh, three persons, one being, and we don't really think of them individual apart from the Trinity. Mm -hmm. right. And we don't think of the Trinity apart from the persons. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a mind-boggling thing to try to understand, of plus, course. Plus, in the way in which that whole discussion um, proceeds is the, the direction of what's going on is, there is there's, a, there's a mutual – I don't know what other phrase to use – a mutual kind of exchange or and, and, a, and a move towards the other, if I can say it that way, outside of the self towards the other in the way they are able to work together, as you think about the right. Trinity working, that also is something that that uh, not just the sexual relationship, but the entire marriage relationship right. is supposed to reflect. Right. Exactly. I mean, I mean that's the, uh, and 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 when we move to the way in which people relate to one another, even outside of marriage, um, and the way in which the genders relate to each other outside of marriage, because I do have more than one female friend. You know, <laughs> uh, you know um, it's healthy. Yeah, it's good. Well, I, I appreciate the affirmation. Um, you know. We really are talking about about learning how to relate well. Exactly. Um, and this is the, the theme that I uh, refer to as cover to cover in the Bible that mm -hmm. is also a part – to be a part of our experience and how we reflect God is this experience of oneness mm -hmm. that's not based in sameness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. See? And so you see it clearly in the marriage of husband and wife mm -hmm. being one yet not the same, mm -hmm. uh, you, you see uh, in God's creation how he has man and woman as both reflections of him. Mm -hmm. Male alone is not a good enough image mm -hmm. bearer of God. Mm -hmm. Female alone is not a sufficient image bearer of mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I think God's also designed this in terms of the marriage relationship bearing a unique way mm -hmm. of God being, you know, oneness not based in sameness, mm -hmm. but also singles, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sexually speaking, mm -hmm. 
also bearing a unique way mm-hmm. about God. Mm-hmm. See, and so in the covenant relationship of marriage, we see we bear God's image in the exclusive nature mm-hmm. of the connection. Mm-hmm. But in singles, we see a inclusive nature. So there's a unique way that all of healthy maleness and all of healthy femaleness come together in a experience that's not a sexual erotic experience, Mm -hmm. but it is the sexual maleness and sexual femaleness in a oneness not based on sameness interaction so point. it's a so it's a gender related yes very much will. so yeah. see and and we have a hard time as a church helping singles know how to do this mm-hmm. see so we kind of give them the message of there's no way that singles are sexually image bearers of God mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so it's kind of an all or nothing thing mm-hmm. see and we we really need to help singles um, I don't know if this term is ever going to catch on or not, but Doug Rosenau uses the term of righteous flirting. Uh-huh. And, and so the idea there is there's a full maleness and full femaleness that come together at a point of exchange that's fully for the sake of the other, mm-hmm. and, and it's not a self-serving exchange. Mm-hmm. See, This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. And in the midst of that, there's a relating, and we're talking. And of course, we're talking here about it completely. Uh, I'm taking it that the expression is used for a whole variety of ways of relating. Yes, um, and, and this is a term that uh, is sometimes uh, referred to as social sexuality. Mm-hmm. See, it's non-erotic. Yeah, mm-hmm. exchange. Right. That's fully healthy and fully righteous. I'm, I'm going to come back. Want to come back to the singles thing because I think you're right. I think there's a whole there's a void that the church has in ministering to singles, and I think they pay the they pay the price for the void because what the single person oftentimes does is say, the church isn't isn't ministering to me in any that's way, say, right. perform. So why should I even be engaged with the church? Mm-hmm. Well, that's important. We'll come back to that because that overlaps with another concern that I think uh, we're seeing, and that is how people, once they graduate and go to college and become single and become adult, um, walk away from the church and establish adult patterns, which then they don't come. It isn't the case as it used to be the case when they would get married younger and come back and they'd start to ask, well, what should our, we do with our kids? They would come 
back as a way. Now their adult patterns are getting sufficiently established, independent of the church, that when they marry, they're not interested in going there. Mm. And so you lose them. Uh, you lose them because of the, the whole emerging adulthood thing, which we've also talked about on many podcasts with mm-hmm. other folks. So, uh, let, let, uh, Debbie, let's let's talk about this. Let's continue to develop this relational side, the gender, the aspect of gender relatedness that's outside of sexuality, but that obviously, if if you develop a healthy personality as you are learning to relate well to gender to the other gender in general if i can say it that way you also are better equipped to uh, minister to your spouse should you be married let, let, what what these things do play off each other don't they i think so and I, gary you are always so great about bringing out the the oneness piece in that and not sameness and I think what ends up happening often in marriage, uh, and maybe we even do this in family sometime with our kids, mm-hmm. but we kind of go with this aspect of sameness instead of oneness, mm-hmm. uh, trying to either make our kids alike, and whether it's siblings, brothers, and sisters ought to be the same, mm-hmm. or then in couple, coupleship, mm-hmm. we will have a tendency to do that same thing, that, that um, if God put Man is the headship. Uh-huh. What he's what he's really asking for is sameness. You know? uh-huh, yeah. And and I think we so really, every marriage the same is what you're saying. Right, well, in in every marriage to be the same, and that yeah. husbands and wives to be the same. Right. Right. And I think that is um, so diminishing what God uh, designed to flourish is oneness, mm-hmm. and in our differences that we would complement one another, mm-hmm. not crush or feel that we'd have to squelch and mm-hmm. be the same. Mm-hmm. But He wants us to flourish in that. And so, you know, I think. One, as, um, working with singles, how to flourish in their single sexuality. Uh, again, another term that Doug Rosenau coined for men and for women is, you know, a soul sexy femininity mm-hmm. and a soul sexy masculinity. Mm-hmm. Being able to delight in the confidence in that in singleness, mm-hmm. and so that we feel confident in who we are when we come into marriage. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we come into marriage to complement, not complete. Because mm-hmm. if it's about completion, it comes close to sameness Mm -hmm. instead of complementing one another in our differences which is more about oneness. Interesting. Yeah, it, it, there. The, uh, I've got about three different places I want to go, <laughs> and I can't go to all of them at once uh, because there are a variety of things that strike me here. One is the the impact of just of being able to relate at a healthy le- level across genders, outside of marriage and outside of issues of sexuality, which set the stage for all all that happens there. The impact of family models on all this, you know, how your mom mm-hmm. and dad or in some the other thing reality that we're dealing with today is is in many homes, we're not dealing with a mom and a dad. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with one parent only mm-hmm. or maybe a grandparent, grandparent. or right. something right. like that. So that's a whole nother dimension. So all that we've got this is part of the brokenness that as we talk about this in, in, in terms of design and the way it's ideally designed to function, the reality is is that we're dealing with a whole array of different configurations that people actually grow up in as you're trying to encourage them, at least from a church standpoint and from a theological standpoint, to think about this is the way God has designed this area. And there are all these bumps along the way as a result. Mm-hmm. That get in the w- that can get in the way right. of how this happens, mm-hmm. uh, making it a much more complicated uh, exercise. So let, let me let me see if I can segment this. That was an overview. Let me see if I can segment this out. Let's talk first about how um, uh, 
Uh, Let's talk about how people form their responses to the different genders. And I realize I'm asking for something a little bit hard here because Mm. one of the things that we're dealing with is, is that different people are different and so they react differently to these kinds of categories. But generally speaking, um, uh, what are are some things we should keep our eyes out for as we're thinking about, um, you know, crossing the bridge from my being a male to interacting with a female or vice versa? What 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 is what is that? What what are the what are the elements that go into that? Obviously, family background goes into that. But what what else is in play here that we need to be sensitive to as we think about that kind of identity? So, are you are you asking us to uh, let's unpack a little what the barriers are to doing that well? Could be, or, could be. I mean, I, I'm, it's an open, completely open ended uh-huh. question. What helps us? One, what helps us get there and form it, particularly perhaps in contexts where and maybe this is why you raise the issue of barriers. How does a person form that if they grow up in a home? That only has one parent. Mm-hmm. Okay, where I've got it. If I can say it this way, a gender imbalance in the home. Right. And so, how do I how do I fill that gap? Yeah. Well, uh, th- this is of course where it's very helpful to think about the family of God, mm-hmm. the extended family, mm-hmm. uh, especially as the nuclear family is going to take on many different sizes, shapes, and forms. Exactly. At this point. Uh, I, I recall uh, at our church when we had a little Cub Scout group, mm-hmm. and I was a den mother mm-hmm. for that. And uh, <laughs> you know, I look at you, and I don't think den mother. That just doesn't leap That's out at me. That was, that was the term they had at the time. Uh, so there was a dozen of of our you know kids, little cubbies, and uh, there were two cubbies that had intact families. Ten. Were single parent families. Hmm. Wow! So when it comes time for the Pinewood Derby, yes, see, right, and you have ten moms trying to help their sons right. build a Pinewood mm. Derby, yeah, you get all different kinds of outcomes. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect some of them were not good. And so uh, there, there were a couple of kids in our group. Mm-hmm that had Pinewood Derbies that would not go down the ramp. Right, See? exactly. So we needed to they do They looked it. good, though. <laughs> <laughs> we needed a little quick action before the uh-huh. actual Pinewood Derby started uh-huh. to do a little fine-tuning. See, And, and that's a great example mm-hmm. of the extended family, mm-hmm. the body of Christ, uh, being able to fill some gaps. Mm-hmm. And the hard part is is that uh, the flip side of this, it seems to me, is, is that when churches are so built around families and presenting families in their ideal uh, mode, the danger is you drive away some of exactly. the very people you can minister exactly. to. Right. Yeah. And so that's a missed opportunity on both sides. Right, exactly, yeah. because, uh, because people can minister to one another in that regard. Um, if, if I could come back to, yeah. I think what you were asking too of what what all may impact how we relate to each other mm-hmm. uh, as male and, and female, or um, what might impair healthy relating. Right. You know, I think we look at certainly it can be about family of origin issues, mm-hmm. whether uh, the family was an intact family or not. You know, I think abuse and trauma mm-hmm. make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe very hyper religious. Mm-hmm. Um, Rituals mm-hmm. or, or hyper-religious teaching without a lot of relationship mm-hmm. uh, can often impair them. You're almost building a spectrum here. I feel <laughs> like we're jumping from one end to the other. That's like, it's good. Okay. Um, 
So, you know, I think there's a, a lot of things for us to look at that may impair that. And then I think where we always want to go back to the positive piece, though, uh, is that the healing and restoration and getting to a healthy component all comes back to, I think, um, a healthy relationship with the Lord and then what we model as church of healthy embracing. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite quotes from Michael Seitzma talks about um, – he's talking about uh, sexual issues and, and those that are wounded, how they come to the church. Mm -hmm. And you know, a question we're going to have to respond to the Creator when he says, what did you do with my wounded lambs? Mm -hmm. Did you help them to heal mm -hmm. or did you send them away bleeding? Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I, I love what you are doing here in helping the church tackle very difficult mm -hmm. uh, topics that are very rampant and and out there. Because I think many churches are sending mm -hmm. the wounded away bleeding instead of us as a church. And when I say church, of course, I'm not talking about the building. Right, us, right. As the people of church right. helping helping these to heal to do healthy relationships. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that, that has struck me in, in really in preparing for this are, are some interesting statistics that, that I just will run. The, I, did, I ran a set of statistics on unmarried births as hmm. of 2011. Wow. Okay, just, just, listen, just listen to this. This is, this is stunning. Um, uh, and I'm going to compare 2011 to 1980. Okay, so we're, we're going to be moving back and forth. In 2011, there were 46 births for every 1,000 unmarried women in the United States. The number has remained relatively steady since 1994. But in 1980, there were 29 births per 1,000. So the 2011 numbers represent a 59% increase since 1980. In 2011, the rate for 20 to 24-year-olds was 70 per 1,000, and for 25 to 29-year-olds, it was 69 per 1,000. So for 20-year-olds, the rate is almost 66% higher than the average. Here's the one that blew me away. Three in ten women today are in cohabitating relationships. They're living with someone, but they're not married. Okay? In 1980, 18.4% of all births were to unmarried mothers. In 2011, that number is up to 40.7 percent, mm -hmm. more than double the older ratio. 2009 was the highest percentage at 41 percent flat. Nearly half of first births to unmarried women of any age, uh, nearly half of first births were to unmarried women right. of any age in the year 2010. And here's another one. Almost three-fourths of first births to women under the age of 25 were non-marital. And it differenti these differentiations are, fluctuate widely by race. Seventy-two percent of all births to black women in 2011 were in non-married homes. Sixty-six percent of American Indians or Alaskan Native women. Fifty-three percent to Hispanic women, compared to 29 percent for white women and 17 percent for Asian and Pacific Islander women. So we're all over the map. In the, mm -hmm. But the point of all those statistics is there is a there are many 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 families. We aren't even talking about the divorced families here right, where there's right. one parent. This is where you start out with what I would label a non-established home, a home okay. that doesn't have both parents in it from the beginning. Um, that's a wide swath of the population, and my guess is, is that the church, generally speaking, isn't doing such a great job mm -hmm. with this demographic. Is uh, I mean, you see this from the counseling side. Is that a fair conclusion? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, uh, people in the counseling office don't see the church as a resource in this regard hmm. because they aren't up to speed enough to be received in the circle. Mm-hmm. See, the church isn't up to speed enough to no, be received. No, oh, as, oh. as my family unit, okay, isn't the family unit it needs to be in order for the church to I receive see. it and have a program for it. I see. See, well, well the other question is: is the ch- would is the church ready to min- if if they came? Would the church be ready to minister to them given where they're coming from? Well, they've got the right theology for it. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, yeah. If it's just about making it operational. Yeah, well, yeah. It's minor, <laughs> minor detail. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like the little theologian. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I really do think this is a major um, concern and blind spot in in, the, in terms of the church's readiness. I mean, I think there's all the willingness in the world to want to go there and to try and go there in any church that has a sense of mission. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, wants to think about uh, going in this direction, yeah. but there literally is a whole swath of the society that, that without some real intentionality, I think, yeah. built into to going there, mm-hmm. you're not going to go there on your on your automatic pilot. Right, mode. right. You know, I, I I will share this because I thought this church did this well. There's a uh, as part of a women's ministry, I had the opportunity of being a part of a program that a church in Canton did. Hmm. And they, um, on Valentine's weekend, mm-hmm. they had a day for the single parents. It was mainly single moms, mm. but single parents, they provided child care. Mm. They had several of us come in as speakers and do a keynote address mm. on um, – there were different topics, everything from deepening your relationship with the Lord to uh, feeling confident in your singleness, mm. and breakout sessions, one on how to interview for jobs, uh, one of them how to dress and present yourself. Mm. Uh, one of them was on parenting as a single mm. and what to watch for, and then they would do gift giveaways, come in for a break and time of praise and worship, and then they may have another keynote. They serve them lunch. Uh, the kids did crafts and they were served lunch. They came back in the afternoon and uh, had other uh, small breakout sessions to attend, and all of them in helping them deal. Uh, one of them was a per- doing personality inventories to hmm. know how uh, they better work in groups or mm-hmm. work in positions. And um, then they came back for dinner, served them dinner, and all the men of the church wore tuxes or suits to serve them dinner, Mm. and they had another presentation and a music group that came in and performed for them. And so the women and all that attended that, then throughout the year, I mean, that's how Mm -hmm. they would start it off, Mm -hmm. and then throughout the year, put them in with mentoring families Mm. and uh, to help them with um, uh, age-appropriate teaching with their kids, to finding positions if they did not have jobs. Hmm. And then they would follow, as, as, as long as they were present and willing to come, hmm. they would follow them out. And uh, if the kids wanted to go to school, they to colleges, they were trying to set up funds that would provide college, college funds for the kids. That church was beginning to do that well. Mm-hmm. I haven't gone back to visit to know how that program's doing, mm-hmm. but they were trying to do right. You saw something really intentional well. at work. Right. It, yeah. it was intentional and deliberate, yeah. and some just the church backed it, the, mm-hmm. the people mm-hmm. supported it because they mm-hmm. saw the need. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, I had I had to throw a positive experience. Right, no, right. that's I, good. I got one to add to it. <laughs> okay. I, I, I this is fresh from last night. Okay, uh, I went to a pre-kindergarten graduation service last night. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm, putting all, I'm putting all those together. <laughs> yeah, those are phrases that don't normally that's, link that's up. That's right. And and so this is a church that my son and daughter-in-law go to, okay. and and so my oldest grandson was in the graduation. Okay, there you go. Uh, and and so uh, this is a remarkable example as well. So uh, boy, I, I don't remember how many total kids they had, but it was maybe thirty-five, mm-hmm. and it was extremely diverse mm-hmm. in every way you could think of, diverse by color. Mm-hmm. And diverse by socioeconomic, by mm-hmm. intact families, not intact families, and um, to see how this uh, church school had embraced all of the different forms of these families, mm. and how the kids had formed a new family mm-hmm. with each other, mm-hmm. which also helped their family units to connect with each other. Yeah, because they're get, getting cross connections. Oh, it was awesome. And then yeah. to see uh, afterwards in the ice cream social just how uh, the mix went. It was truly a wonderful picture of oneness not based on sameness. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Join us next week for part two. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.